All right, guys. So it's fall again, and I know we're just a few months away from Creogs. Nick, I'm always looking for places to find good information to make sure that my residents have good information for their exams. And also, you know, I continue to refresh my knowledge of OBGYN. Well, yeah. I mean, you're already listening to what I'll say in my humble opinion is the best podcast in OBGYN, but we also (laughs) have some great other resources available through the resident core curriculum with our friends at the OBG project. Definitely. The nice thing about the OBG project is that not only do they have the resident core, they have an OBG L&D ebook and other things like the second trimester ultrasound atlas, all of which you can access for free as a resident if you sign up. Head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and again, get the OBG project and all their resources free for all four years of residency. Just again, head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is. All right, guys, so today we are back and we're going to be talking about something that's pretty new, I think, to us uh, during the pandemic, which is the telehealth visit for the OBGYN. So what are our learning objectives for today, Nick? So we're going to review some of the data behind telehealth visits and how they've been helpful in the last few years if you haven't been around telehealth for some reason or another, but I'm sure you're all aware of at least some way of how they've been helpful. Next, we'll understand sort of actually some methods of how to conduct a successful telehealth visit. And then finally, we'll discuss some options about how to incorporate telehealth visits into your current care infrastructure, if you will. What we're not going to be able to do just as a disclaimer is to discuss each state's laws surrounding telehealth visits or how to bill for telehealth visits. Again, those are kind of just more local context important. So take what we say kind of with that asterisk of, oh, I need to double check with anything in my local jurisdiction. Um, There's a really nice committee opinion about this, number 798 of implementing telehealth in practice. Faye, let's just get started with always our basic question, though. What is telehealth? Yeah, so um, ACOG defines it as a collection of means or methods for enhancing the healthcare, public health, and health education delivery and support using telecommunications technologies. Um, and the term telehealth is often used to refer traditionally to, um, you know, the doctor's visit where you're making a clinical diagnosis or monitoring. Um, and we're just doing that by delivering that via technology. So um, you guys may be familiar with it because of, you know, maybe doing some Zoom calls with your patient, for example. But we, it's important to remember that connected health and digital healthcare are also terms that broadly describe similar technology applications in healthcare. And telehealth can refer to a broad list of healthcare topics, things like diagnosis and management, which we mentioned, but also things like education. So for example, podcasts um, and other related fields of healthcare. Um, And this can include things like remote monitoring. So, you know, potentially even doing remote fetal monitoring, uh, mobile healthcare. So things like text messages, apps, things like that. And these services can be in real time, synchronous, or the store and forward method, which is asynchronous. And so that would be, for example, like those text message or app-based care. So now that we know what telehealth is, Nick, and it seems like it's a lot broader than I think what I originally thought, talk to us a little bit about the data behind telehealth. Yeah, so 
A lot of data surrounding telehealth is actually very recent, right? And sort of opportunistic in the sense of the COVID-19 pandemic sort of forced us to go to telehealth for a lot of visits. And this has really been true in OB especially because we have a model of care where we're seeing patients multiple times in a short span. And sometimes it's really just more about a counseling visit than doing an exam or anything like that. And so telehealth really has become part of our paradigm very, very quickly. One really nice study actually came out in February of 2020. So sort of actually this would have had to been accepted to the green kind of before COVID, truthfully. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I guess so fortuitous serendipitous, if you will. Uh, we'll link totally. to it on the website. <laughs> but the title of the study was called Telehealth Interventions to Improve Obstetric and Gynecologic Health Outcomes um, by Dr. Denicola and uh, their colleagues. So this sort of was a summary study looking at a total of 47 studies, including almost 32,000 patients, and came to conclusions that telehealth actually had some great benefits and some great applications. So they were able to show through this kind of improvement of obstetric outcomes via increased smoking cessation and increased breastfeeding rates, decreased need for high-risk obstetric office monitoring visits, um, though not leading to worse maternal and fetal outcomes, which I think is really important countermeasure to have there. Um, and again, showing that you know, telemedicine worked for those things. We also saw through this study that telehealth seemed to be effective for continuation strategies for oral and injectable contraceptives. And telehealth provision of medication abortion services had similar outcomes compared to in-person care and improved access to early abortion. And we're seeing more and more data like this through the green and the gray and other journals even outside of obstetrics and gynecology that seem to be really, really reassuring about the safety and efficacy of telemedicine. Um, but this one, I think, like I said at the beginning, was just so well-timed, whether it was intended yeah. or not, um, to kind of say, hey, there actually is a really solid amount of data for using this in obstetrics and gynecology in particular. So one thing, Faye, that we always have to think about with telemedicine, and I remember having these conversations at the beginning of the pandemic, um, was about equity with telehealth and how technology may or may not be equitably accessed in some populations. What do we know about this? Yeah. So before we can conduct a successful telehealth visit, there are unfortunately a lot of barriers that we have to talk about. Um, so just like any type of healthcare, there's always going to be some type of barriers to equity. And I think it's really important to talk about these things. Um, there's a really great article by Dr. Um, Ukoha and uh, their colleagues in the Green Journal from March of 2021 called Ensuring Equitable Implementation of Telemedicine in Perinatal Care. And we'll also link that to our website. Essentially, Dr. Ukohan and their colleagues broke this down into uh, a few factors. So there were healthcare practitioner factors, health system factors, patient factors, and then also payer and policy factors. And we'll go over these a, a little bit uh, more in detail. So in terms of healthcare practitioner factors, those include things like attitudes and perceptions of the healthcare practitioner, as well as those inherent biases and assumptions um, that everyone has. And the studies have shown that when looking at patient portal use, Latino, Black, and individuals with low income were less likely to be offered by their healthcare provider um, access to their patient portal. And all, then this led to significantly lower uptake of patient portal use. So just one example there. 
The other thing um, that can lead to a barrier are certain health system factors. And so, for example, safety net health systems and community health centers often lag behind in offering telemedicine simply because um, there may not be the infrastructure or there may not be the technology available or the money available at those centers to provide um, in the same way that a larger academic system may be able to. There's also patient factors. So um, potentially there are patients who do not have access to the technology that's required for telehealth, or perhaps they don't have reliable internet coverage. Um, Some patients may also have low health and digital literacy. And we also know that unfortunately, non-English speakers can also have a barrier to telemedicine use because there could be uh, certain issues in terms of getting a translator. We know that these factors disproportionately affect those in rural areas, as well as those that identify as Black, Indigenous, people of color, and those living on lower incomes. So the other thing that we should worry about too, Nick, are those payer and policy factors. So tell us a little bit more about those. Yeah, so I guess we sort of mentioned this at the outset of the podcast, Faye, and sort of that state Medicaid programs in particular have a lot of differing attitudes towards telemedicine. Um, and there's kind of an environment where coverage is restricted um, with respect to telemedicine and other remote management services. Prior to COVID-19, there were only 19 state Medicaid programs that explicitly recognized the patient's home as an eligible originating site for telemedicine services. Additionally, there are licensing issues where states require practitioners to be licensed within the state where the patient was receiving their care. So ultimately, this limits patients from accessing telehealth services from out-of-state practitioners. This was actually really, really apropos where I am in Washington, where we serve Mm -hmm. a kind of very large five-state region um, of very, very rural states, but specialty care is really concentrated here in Seattle. Um, There were bilateral agreements between states during the pandemic, most of which now have gone away. And so um, it's really a, a challenging thing when you have these patient relationships that now are kind of getting broken up, frankly, by the changing environment as we, quote unquote, exit the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. The same thing has happened here where, you know, we often have patients who are coming from New Jersey or Delaware that are much closer to where we are in Philadelphia than certain parts of Pennsylvania. And unfortunately, we're just not able to see those patients unless we also have a Delaware or New Jersey license. Yeah. So again, it really goes to show that you do have to be aware of your state's policies with respect to um, telehealth. And then also potentially be aware of neighboring states' policies with respect to telehealth. The last thing that I'll say sort of on the payer and policy factors is that there's limited coverage for audio-only services. And again, this is kind of another equity issue, right? Is that if you don't have access to broadband internet and the ability to do face video kind of conference, the only way that you're going to be able to do telemedicine is through, you know, old-fashioned over the phone, right? And that's tends to be more accessible for folks. Um, But if the coverage is not there for it, then you're not going to provide the service. So challenging kind of environments in a lot of ways on payer and policy arena. The the paper actually made a whole host of recommendations to kind of help mitigate some of these factors, though, Faye, and some things that actually we can start to advocate for as trainees and as junior faculty. Yeah, so I think these are the things that are going to help us be able to better 
provide telehealth services and better conduct a successful telehealth interview. So um, these kind of address all of those barriers that we just talked about. So for example, individual practitioners should acknowledge and mitigate their implicit biases, and certainly systems can help train individuals to hopefully uh, recognize their own biases and try to overcome them. Systems should also ensure that telehealth platforms are secure and widely usable. So this goes back to, you know, certain health systems not having access to these types of things. And then um, we also think that systems should provide technological and clinical infrastructure, including patient-centered education tools. Um, And they should also allow for telephone visits when video visits are not feasible or desired and then should conduct rigorous quality assurance efforts to make sure that um, the visits are private between patient and their provider. In terms of payers and policy changes, so really payers should make telemedicine a standard coverage benefit and cover at-home monitoring equipment in the same way that they would if the patient were coming into the office. Because this is essentially how a lot of us are providing care now in the pandemic slash quote-unquote, post-pandemic days. Um, And payers can also provide mobile devices with data plans or Wi-Fi to better allow patients to have access to um, this type of healthcare because truly, I think in 2022, having a cell phone, having access to internet really is a basic need. In terms of uh, other things, uh, insurance companies and also health systems should require reimbursement of audio-only visits to try and limit some of those barriers. They should also ensure payment parity across sites and types of visits, and then expand the ability to practice telemedicine across state lines and remove those existing barriers to multi-state licensure. All right, Nick, so I know that this is kind of a short and sweet episode on the telehealth visit, so why don't we go ahead and summarize? Totally. So we started off saying telehealth was broadly defined as a collection of means or methods for enhancing healthcare, public health, and health education delivery and support using telecommunications technologies. So we often talk about it as traditional clinical diagnosis and monitoring stuff, doing your visit on Zoom. Um, But there's a lot of other ways with connected health, digital healthcare that are also descriptive of quote-unquote telehealth. Things like remote monitoring, mobile healthcare through text messages or apps, and doing that in a synchronous or an asynchronous way. And while telehealth is relatively new, there is good data that came out just before the pandemic hit. Um, So we'll link that on our website. But essentially, with the systematic review, it showed that telehealth can improve obstetric and gynecological outcomes in terms of smoking cessation, increasing breastfeeding, um, increasing continuation of oral injectable contraceptions, and then also showed that it was non-inferior to inpatient um, services for medication abortions. With any emerging technology, keeping an eye on equity is important. So the same thing in telehealth, and we'll link to Dr. Yokoa's article on our website and talking about ensuring equitable implementation of telemedicine and perinatal care. Some of the factors that went over in this paper included healthcare practitioner factors like inherent biases, health systems factors, where community health centers and safety net health systems may lag behind in telemedicine, patient level factors with absence of technology, no internet coverage, poor health digital literacy, or non-English speaking patients, payer and policy factors, as we mentioned a lot during the podcast today, where there's trouble with payment in terms of restricting coverage of telemedicine, um, preventing telemedicine practice across state lines, um, and then limited coverage for audio-only services. 
And finally, we ended the podcast with some recommendations to try and help mitigate these barriers, um, going from things like acknowledging individual biases to systems that should provide telehealth platforms and technological and clinical infrastructure to allow for telehealth, as well as having payers and health systems um, making telemedicine a standard coverage benefit, and also potentially providing things like mobile devices and data plans or Wi-Fi, as well as requiring reimbursement of things like audio-only visits, and ensuring payment parity across sites and types of visits. All right. Well, I think that does it for today. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Eggs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and go to your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreagsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at Coffee, Or if you love the show, send us some support head to our Patreon, patreon.com slash coffee. Send us some love. We'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show as well as all of our other episodes as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, www.creagsrivercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our prior episodes or just want to say hello, email us, creagsrivercoffee at gmail.com. 